It's Christmas time. We're in the thick of it. I love how Dana has our house all decked out on the inside. It's very festive. The outside of the house is not so festive because uh, that's my turf and I don't yet have the lights on the house and that's because I'm very slow and uh, maybe sometime between now and December 25th I'll get around to putting the lights on the house, maybe. Uh, And this time of year, one of the soapboxes I seem to find myself climbing up on again and again, it's something that I feel very, very strongly about. It's this. I don't think we worship God enough at Christmas time. You agree? I don't think we worship God enough at Christmas time. And I think we could apply that really to the whole year, not just Christmas time. But I think we especially don't worship God enough at Christmas time. And what I mean by that is I don't think we make enough space in our hearts and lives to adore Him, God, to celebrate Him, to worship Him, to revel in Him during the season that is more so than any other supposed to be all about Him. And it's because we get so doggone busy, we're so focused on getting the right gifts for people, we're so focused on making sure that everyone is perfectly pampered at our meals and parties, and so uh, we, we worry endlessly that little Susie won't be disappointed with what Santa brings to her, and we just lose our focus on Jesus. Now, just to prove my point, scan in your mind's eye across our cultural landscape these days, and ask yourself this question, what is our culture's dominant driving force behind Christmas time? What is our culture's dominant driving force behind Christmas time? And I'm actually going to ask you to turn to the person you're sitting next to or the person you came with and answer that question one to another. What is our culture's, culture's dominant driving force behind Christmas time? Ready, set, talk to each other. Culture's dominant driving force behind Christmas time. Y'all done? If you said something around shopping or consumerism or commerce, you'd be right. You'd be absolutely right. Just to prove my point, here is uh, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, Monday, November 28th. Uh, It is not the headline story, but it is on the front page. Retailers see robust start to holidays. Early estimates record, this is a sub-headline, early reports estimate a record 226 million people sought deals during the four-day holiday weekend. That's the weekend formerly known as Thanksgiving weekend, right? Now it's just like shopping weekend, right? Here's what the article goes on to say. More Americans hunted for bargains this weekend than ever before as retailers lured, you got lured in, online and into stores with big discounts and an earlier-than-usual start to the holiday shopping season. A record 226 million shoppers visited stores and websites during the four-day holiday weekend starting on Thanksgiving Day, up from 212 million last year, according to early estimates. They just have to keep moving the start further and further and further back, right? That's what happened. Sorry, I moved out of the shot. Forgive me. I'm supposed to stay on this rug. (laughs) Bad boy. Americans spent more, too. The average holiday shopper spent $398.62 over the weekend, up from $365.34 a year ago. Here's a little story inside this article. Art and Anne Destrada from Port Chester, New York, they were among the holiday shoppers. They started shopping on Thanksgiving evening at a Walmart store. Can you think of anything worse? Thanksgiving evening at Walmart. Some of you are like, I was there. (laughs) I see it in your eyes. They went to various malls in New Jersey on Friday. They got some deals at Macy's on Saturday. I'll send you a bill for that one, Macy's. 
Uh, they spend a total of $2,000 on gifts for themselves and others, including a Wii video game console, clothing, and jewelry. They finally got a Wii. Sweet. We've saved for Christmas and put away money all year, says Anna Destrada, age 49. We stayed within our means so that we could make a few splurges. The results for the first holiday shopping week can show that retailers' efforts to lure, there's the word again, shoppers during the week economy are working. It's working. They're right. It's absolutely working. Thanksgiving weekend isn't about family. It's not about gratitude. It's not about giving thanks to the one and only God who has provided so incredibly much for us and to us. Instead, now it's all about shopping. They've entirely managed, they have rebranded Thanksgiving into, let's just call it go shopping, right? And it's working. And then it's all downhill, all the way from go shopping weekend until Christmas, right? Be a consumer, buy, 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 all the way from what used to be called Thanksgiving weekend until the day after Christmas, Because the day after Christmas, we take back all the stuff we didn't want, need, or like, and we trade it for more stuff we don't really need. And as long as we're out there, we spend gift cards and the cash that we got for Christmas. And that's the drill. That's our cultural landscape. That's the treadmill that we're on. But get this. The whole reason that the tradition of gift-giving at Christmas time came into being was because God created humanity for a relationship with him. This is where it starts. It starts with God creating humanity for a relationship with him. And we messed that up, didn't we? We sinned, we blew it. We screwed it up. Every single one of us. We sinned. And then 2,000 years ago, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to earth. God with skin on. And he sent Jesus to show us how to live a kingdom of God bringing life. To show us how to bring the kingdom of God to earth the very same way that it is in heaven. And... God sent Jesus so that he could die on the cross for us, so that we could step into the relationship with him that we were supposed to have before we made a mess of our relationship with him because of sin and so. And then, a year after Jesus was born, some wise men, some kings, they came to Jesus and they brought presents. They brought offerings to honor the king of the world the savior of humanity. And somehow that turned into people buying gifts for each other. And somehow that turned into this buying frenzy. And somehow that all turned into the dominant thrust of the Christmas season. Consumerism, shopping, buy, buy, buy. And for a whole bunch of people, Jesus has been entirely eclipsed by shopping, by consumerism by the treadmill, such that a whole bunch of us don't really make space in our hearts and lives to adore God during this season, a season that is supposed to especially be about him. And Christians, that ought to bum us out in a major sort of way. And it ought to be, in my view, the impetus for us pressing the reset button on this Christmas season and actually returning these days to their original intent. And it's with that in mind that for the next three weekends, from now until we celebrate Christ's birth and our Christmas at the Commons experiences, we're going to be looking at how the major players around Christ's birth, the angels, the shepherds, and the wise men, one group each weekend between now and Christmas time, and how they all adored God, how they all adored Christ 2,000 years ago, and how their adoration of him can help us adore him better.
Today we're going to talk about how angels adore. And adore is a word we don't use all that much, do we? Once in a while you might hear it. So I went to the dictionary so I didn't screw up the definition of it. And the dictionary tells us that to adore means this, to worship or honor. To worship or honor, to regard with loving admiration and devotion. And so ask yourself this question, in light of that definition, to worship or honor, to regard with loving admiration or devotion, how's your adoration factor on a scale of one to ten of God right now, in the midst of this Christmas season? Nine or ten, or one or two? Are you just busy, hurriedly running here and there, or are you truly taking time and making space to adore God, celebrate him, worship him, revel in him during the season that is supposed to be all about him. And angels, they're sort of everywhere all throughout the Christmas narrative, aren't they? They're just sort of all over the place. We sing songs at Christmas time that sort of highlight the angels' role at Christ's birth. Angels from the realms of glory, for example. Hark, the herald angels sing among a whole bunch of others. And I think it's a fair question to stop and ask, what is the primary role of angels? Not just in the Christmas narrative, but in general. What are angels all about? Because when we think of angels' role at Christmas time, our answer to their primary role is, well, they're messengers, right? The angels are very simply, they're just messengers. They're busy delivering these special messages from God to all sorts of various people. And we're going to look at them together. The first angelic message delivered regarding Christ's coming was actually in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Here's the story. When Herod was king of Judah, Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, here it is, A messenger, an angel of the Lord, appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be so sure that this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Now we see what Zechariah says to the angel. But what we don't get to see, because there's no videotape of this, we don't get to see his body language, do we? But we sort of get the sense by Gabriel's reaction that his body language, he must have been like rolling his eyes and such at this message, right? Because look at how the angel replies. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, exclamation point. It's like, who are you? I'm Gabriel. And I stand in the very presence of God. 
And it was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, like, Gabriel's mad. He's like offended. How dare you kind of a thing. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. Bummer. (laughs) For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Zechariah had a bit of an attitude around his pushback, didn't he? And so Gabriel's like, all right, buddy. Here's what you got coming. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. What's going on in there? When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence, he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. Yes, slightly. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. The angel comes, brings a special message for Zechariah. The second angelic message concerning Christ's birth shows up right on the heels of the first one, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Let's read this one together. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God, here we go, God sent the angel Gabriel the Nazareth. Gabriel's really racking on the frequent flyer miles. He's going to make medallion status this year. Sends him to a village in Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. Interesting greeting. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, you would be too. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. Ah, she gets it. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great. It will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel. Now remember, Zechariah asked the angel too. But he had an attitude. I don't think Mary does. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And we know that Mary must not have had attitude because look at Gabriel's response here. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Like there's no sealing your lips that happens to Mary. She was soft in her question. So the baby to be born will be holy. He will be called the son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. Love this. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Angel bringing the message of God. Nine months later, We presume that once again it's Gabriel who shows up in the skies of Judea to announce the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus the Christ. Luke chapter 2. Very, very familiar words. Starting in verse 8. That night there were shepherds, we're going to talk about them next weekend, staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance, imagine this, the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. Yes. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. Whoa. Get that in your mind's eye. The armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven, peace on earth, to those with whom God is pleased. So we see again and again, angels, they serve as messengers of God. But get this, that is not their primary 
role. Go to the book of Isaiah if you have a Bible, chapter 6. Let's look and see what the angel's primary role is. We know what it isn't. Let's see what it is. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. It was in the year, these are the words of Isaiah himself, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. It gives you some sense of the scope of God, such that the train of his robe, just the train of his robe, filled the temple. Attending to him were mighty seraphim. These are angelic beings, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so Isaiah gets this incredible privilege of stepping into the throne room of God himself. And the angels, what are they doing? They're adoring God. They're praising God, worshiping God. They're not just messengers at this point. They're just worshiping him. And then go to Revelation chapter 5. John himself was given a glimpse of heaven as well. Chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is John writing, remember, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. You see, angels' primary role is to adore God. That's what they are about. Angels aren't just first century versions of FedEx drivers delivering God's urgent news to people. They're adorers, worshipers of God. And as soon as they wrap up worshiping and adoring God for one attribute of his nature and his character, they recall another of God's outstanding attributes and they burst forth with another word of worship for him, to him, for that. Adoring God is the angel's first business. And this is the angel's primary purpose for all of eternity. And so see, if we're going to press the reset button of our own Christmas season, if we're going to return these days to their original intent, which is to adore God, the angels have much to teach us. The first thing is this, that the adoration of God begins with the awareness of the presence of God. Get that. The adoration of God begins with the awareness of the presence of God. We see from the Isaiah text, the Revelation text, that angels live constantly in the presence of God. God is right there. He's completely and entirely visible to the angels. And because of that, the angels are compelled to worship and adore him with everything they are. They see who he is. They see his majesty. They grasp the fullness of his beauty, his perfection, his holy, his magnificence. And they adore him with everything they are because of it. Now get this, you and I are no less surrounded by the very presence of God than the angels are. We too live in the presence of God. We're perpetually and entirely surrounded by the presence of God. He is right here, he is as close as your skin, but we forget it. The angels don't. Life gets busy for us. Life gets cluttered, burdensome. We're worrying about this thing or that thing dashing here and there. We're caught up in this and that. It's shopping time, remember. 
And because we get distracted, because we take our eye off of the proverbial ball, we forget that we too, just as much as the angels do, dwell in the very presence of God. To reset our Christmas season, to restore these days to their original intent, to adore God like angels adore God, we must live with this awareness that we are constantly living in the presence of God. We just are. I told you that last weekend we were hunting and it was Saturday morning and we headed out, Dad and uh, Silas, Josh thought that sleep would be better than getting up at four and going hunting. And on Saturday we were, uh, at least Silas was mildly discouraged with me because I had missed the big dog. And so he's wondering, geez, is my dad even capable of getting this done? Such a loser. But we headed out and my dad went one way and Silas went the other way and we put serious miles on our boots on Saturday morning. We hiked and we sort of made these circles and circles and circles all through this territory we were hunting. We covered serious ground looking for these elk and we never ever found these elk. And so we came to like middle of the morning and we just sort of sit down on this beautiful open saddle. It is a gorgeous day and we're hanging out sort of resting there. It all of a sudden came to my attention where the elk were and what they were about to do. They were at the top of this bare mountain right over here. And I realized, don't ask me how I realized this, I realized this, that the elk were going to leave the top of that mountain all of a sudden and they were going to careen down the side of the mountain through this great big draw and they were going to come to the bottom and they were going to be forced with a choice. Are they going to stay in that draw, run right out into ground that I could only dream about hunting on? Or are they going to come out of the draw and right by in front of us at about 200 yards? And so I'm analyzing this and I'm thinking, okay, I see what's about to happen. The elk are going to run right down this draw. And so Silas, we got to get over there to the edge of that draw and we got to sort of set up so we can see because then it won't matter which way they go. We're going to head them off at the pass, as it were. And so I start to take off and I'm sort of in a hurry. I'm like, come on, Silas, this is going to happen fast. Like, let's go. And he just stands there. Like, come on, Silas, let's go. No, dad, we need to stay right here. I'm like, no, no, actually, Silas, see what's going to happen is the elk, they're going to run down and they're going to be in this draw and we've got to go over there so we can sort of head them off and then it won't matter which way they go. And he's like, no, Dad, we've got to wait right here. And I'm going like, dude, when did you become the American rifleman? <laughs> really? Like, like we've got to go over there. And so I'm starting to go again. And he's like, no, Dad, and here's the word he used. Dad, we need to be patient and wait right here. He's 17 and I'm much older and he's like calling me out. We need to be patient and wait right here. And I'm like, okay, thus saith the Lord. (laughs) We're going to stay right here except for this isn't a great spot. Silas, could we at least go get in those trees so that we'll have some chance at this, you know? And he's like, yeah, okay. So we go to the trees and we're hanging out and here they come. They come down from the top of the mountain. They're in that draw. They're actually out of sight for a long period of time and I'm sitting in the trees and I'm thinking to myself, aha, They went the other way. I was right. I was right. But no, pretty quick they came up out of that draw. Here they came across and they're just spilling out across 200 yards below us. And it is a spectacular 150 elk at 200 yards stampeding. It was unbelievable. And I got one shot and I missed. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. That, That doesn't matter, right? It just... Doesn't matter, don't dwell on that. Good old dad. But the beauty of that moment, 
cause me not to care that I missed the big dog. You should have seen this. It is a gorgeous, bluebell, sunny day. 150 elk, which in my view are one of God's most glorious creations. And they come down the side of this enormous mountain and they come out in front of us, headed straight for us. The sound of their hoofs on the dirt and the rocks, it was thunderous, literally. Dust is flying, the elk are making all manner of noise, grunts. It was astonishing. The wonder of that five minutes is forever DVR'd on my brain. I'll not ever forget it as long as I live. And we were surrounded in that moment by the very presence of God, weren't we? And our realization, all of our realization, that we are constantly engrossed in the presence of God is vital to our ability to adore God the way the angels adore God. Maybe for you it's elk stampeding down a mountain. Maybe for you it's watching a baby discover its own hand for the very first time. Maybe for you it's something like watching video of somebody walking in space. Whatever it is, all of those moments are way more than just life enrichment opportunities. They're actual moments when we are surrounded by the very presence of God. And when we're paying attention, those moments reveal that this world is so much more than just material and energy and chance, but there is actually a transcendent God whose fingerprints are everywhere around us and that he actually surrounds us with his very presence constantly. God's here. He is ever-present. He is always active in this unbelievable world that we live in. He is present and active in every single person that we encounter. And we are meant to see and realize his activity and live in his presence in this world. We're meant to see his greatness and his goodness. And inside of that seeing and recognizing, we're propelled or we ought to be propelled to adore him with our entire lives. Constantly. Just like the angels adore him. The adoration of God begins with the realization of the presence of God constantly. Number two, our adoration of God sets our lives in a posture of awe at the reality that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be humanity's savior. I'm convinced that the reason that we're capable of degrading Christmas time into a 30-day experience in commerce is because we've forgotten exactly what it is, everything that Jesus has done for us. We've just simply forgotten it. We've taken it for granted, we've moved on, and we've forgotten. But let me bring us back to it, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the gospel in a nutshell. But God showed his great love, change the word us to you, his great love for you, by sending Christ to die for you, me, us, while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. Not after we cleaned up our act. Not after we got our game together. Not after we put our church clothes on and got like all shined up. While we were still a mess. Wallowing in our sin. And that's every one of us. We're all sinners. We've all blown it. None of us is righteous before God. We all, every one of us, stand condemned by God to eternity apart from him in hell. 
That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we believe. And God looked on that and he said, no, I love you all too much for that to be it. And so he sends Jesus that first Christmas because he loves us. And Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead so that we could know God and we get that. And so many of us sitting in this room and within the hearing of my voice have taken God up on his offer of salvation and eternal life. We've made Jesus our savior and boss, absolutely. We're walking with him and life is good. By the way, if you have yet to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, I'm gonna give you a chance to do that in just a few minutes. If you'll just hang with me. And lots of us in this room and within the hearing of my voice, we have these fantastic testimonies of God doing these great things in us, making us new and whole, healing us and all this other great stuff. And then here's this massive disconnect, and this is what I'm talking about. We celebrate that amazing gift that God gave us by sending his son and everything that he's done for us via a 30-day shopping excursion. Really? Where is the adoration of God for every single thing that he's done for us. And I know I'm coming strong on the shopping deal and I want you to know that at our house we shop, by the way, we do. We have Christmas at our house and we exchange gifts. But what we're trying to do is not let it define the season. But rather letting God and our adoration of him define the season. And in light of every single thing that God has done for us, we ought to be moved from within to live a life of adoration and worship and celebration and praise, a life in which adoring God comes before and during and in the midst of everything else. Now get this, when it comes to the salvation deal, the only thing the angels can do with that is they can watch it. The only thing the angels can do around salvation is watch it. Angels do not get the privilege of experiencing the redemption and salvation and restoration of God. But look how they give themselves entirely to the adoration of God. It's all they do. And so here we are. We're human beings. We get the incredible. There's not words to define how incredible this gift is. We get the incredible privilege of actually experiencing, tasting salvation, redemption, restoration. And that ought to mean for us followers of Jesus Christ that our adoration of God, our worship of God ought to top that of the angels. Because we're actually experiencing redemption and salvation. Forget shopping. Right? We ought to be blowing it out in praise and worship around the clock with our whole lives because of every single thing that God's done for us. Number three, and we'll finish here. The adoration of God propels us to be messengers of God's good news. The adoration of God propels us to be messengers of God's good news. Because you see, bringing God's good news to people begins in the place and a posture of adoration of God for every single thing he's done for us. It's the angel's adoration and worship of God that fuels their role as the messengers of God that we see them act out on the pages of scripture. Have you thought about this? We're often very weak messengers of God's good news because we're weak adorers and worshipers of God. 
We're anemic in sharing the good news because we're anemic in our adoration and our worship of God. It starts with adoration. Our lives given entirely to the worship, the adoration, the praise of our God. The reason that the angels so capably deliver the message of God is because they're constantly living as adorers of him. They weren't just trying to cram it into 75 minutes once a week and calling it good. They give themselves entirely to it. They live the adoration of God. And I believe to the core of my being that our capacity and our desire and our passion and our fervor to deliver the good news message of Jesus Christ to the people in our world who so desperately need it would be increased immeasurably if and when we fully adored our God, like the angels do. And so out of all that comes two very simple challenges, really, that I want to leave you with today. The first is this. Will you give yourself entirely to adoring God more than you give yourself to anything else this Christmas time? Will you give yourself to adoring God more than you give yourself to anything else this Christmas time? Will you make adoring Him and worshiping Him, praising Him, number one, this Christmas time? That means you're going to make space, you're going to make time in your heart and life to worship Him. That means you're going to be about returning these days to their original intent. Adoration over consumerism and commerce. I urge you to get your family around this with you. Sit down around the kitchen table and have a summit. Make a list of the things that you're not going to do because that takes your eye off of the proverbial ball. And then make a list of things you are going to do to adore Jesus fully this Christmas time. And the second thing is this. Would you pray and would you ask God to use your heightened adoration of him during the season, to give energy to your doing something about the people in your world who don't yet know Jesus. That your adoration of him would fuel your passion for people who are living life far from God. Have that, yes, that conversation over a cup of coffee with the person who God's been asking you and nudging you and even perhaps gently kicking you in the behind for a long time, have that conversation with them about Jesus. You know the person I'm talking about, the one you've wimped out on again and again and again. Just do it. Just do it. Make the call. Send the email. Book the appointment. Whatever whatever it is, just do it. Go. And it's a simple conversation, isn't it? It's you sitting across the table saying, look, here's what God did for me. Here's what God wants to do for you. And he invites you to make the very same choice that I made with my life, yielding your heart and life to him. It is not a complex conversation. It's not even all theological. It's about what God did in you that he wants to do in them. Go. Go. See, once a year, once a year, the world has a day of absolute crystal clarity. And it is December 25th. Pretty much everything stops. Families gather, businesses stand still, traffic clears. And on December 25th, this is amazing, even the atheists think about the baby who was the savior of the world. And then, on December 26th, the world slips back into a coma about Jesus. 
Church, don't waste this opportunity. Don't waste this opportunity. Did you know that the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas are the greatest weeks of faith-sharing opportunity for followers of Jesus all year long? More Americans are receptive to an invitation during the Christmas season than any other time of the year. Make much of that. Do something simple like getting tickets to Christmas at the Commons and bring folks with you, not just on one arm, but on two. Four different times we're going to gather in this room for Christmas at the Commons celebrating Jesus' birth. That means there's literally going to be 4,000 empty seats in this room for those four different experiences. Fill them up. Fill them up. Before your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your classmates and your roommates slip back into a coma about Jesus Christ and who he is, ask them to be a part of your Christmas with you right here and who knows. Maybe God will do something amazing like save their soul, something only he can do. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, please. I invite you to go to prayer. Use even these quiet moments to adore God. I invite you and God in these moments to come to some agreement about some things. First is, what are you going to do to give yourself entirely to adoring God this Christmas time? What are you going to do? What are you not going to do? Just invite you and the Lord to sort of check through some things together. Drive some stakes in the ground. Make some life decisions. The second part of that is who are you going to have that faith-sharing conversation with? Who is it? Who are you going to invite to Christmas at the Commons? Come to some agreement with the Lord around that. Don't come to some procrastination around that. Come to some agreement and action. That's what God's inviting us to, all of us. And then maybe you're a person who's here, you have yet to give your heart and life to Jesus. Why not today? Why not cease your running from him, your rebelling against him? Why not make today the day you come home to God? The day you give him your everything. That's what he's inviting you to do right here, right now. He's inviting you to step into his forgiveness. The forgiveness of his son, Jesus Christ, who died so that you could live in relationship with him. Starting right now and extending for all of eternity. And if that's your choice today, I just invite you right where you are to pray along with me. God, I get it. I'm a sinner to the core and I need a savior, I need Jesus. 
And so Jesus, I thank you for taking my place, for dying to set me free from life and eternity apart from you. Here's my heart, here's everything I am. Wash me clean, please make me new by the power of your death, burial, and resurrection. I'm yours, God, I love you. And if that's the decision of your heart today, that's a big deal, the biggest thing ever in your life, actually. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. I want you to know nobody's looking around this room except me. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I'm just gonna invite you, if you made that choice today, would you just be bold and slip your hand up and lock eyes with me? Just say, yep, that's me today. Let me just say yes with you. You can do that. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yes. I stand with you and I say yes with you. And I say yes with you, yes. Way to go. Yes, absolutely. God's changing you, he's making you new and Life looks different for you from here on out. It all changes, actually. Oh God, we adore you with everything that we are. And we ask your forgiveness for forgetting that we're surrounded by your presence. We ask your forgiveness for being distracted by stuff that really just doesn't matter. It's you. And so God, will you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit set our hearts and minds fully on you that we might fully engage in worshiping you this Christmas time. You're so worthy. You are so worthy. And we are so grateful that you chose to send Jesus that first Christmas all adoration is yours God for you are the best 